The information contained in this podcast is an expression of opinion and does not constitute investment advice. This is the Gold Money Podcast with Dominic Frisby, keeping you up to date with expert opinion on precious metals and the markets. Hello and welcome to the Gold Money Podcast, hosted in association with Frisbee's Bulls and Bears, with me, Dominic Frisbee. So, I'm sitting in a very glamorous hotel in South Kensington and in London, and uh, sitting opposite me is the great market strategist uh, and historian and newsletter writer, Bob Hoy. Bob, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show on your annual visit to London. How are you doing? Very well, Dominic, and really good to see you again. It's been a year. It's been a year, but it's it's been a good year. What what do you, what have you um, do you see any differences in your in your in the, what little you've seen of London? Is it the same as it always is? Or? Oh, Samuel Johnson was right. If a man is tired of London, a man is tired of life, and London is invigorating. I love it. That's uh, it. it um, have you been out and about on this visit? You yes, know you were we out went, shopping yesterday. Yeah, were you shopping. surprised how crowded it was? Or? Yeah. No, there's people. People are. It uh, looks like they're transacting. They certainly some of the shops were able to get some money out of my pocket quite pleasantly. Were any of the shoppers English? <laughs> <laughs> Not even the attendants were English. <laughs> and and we managed to go and see uh, Warhorse last night. Okay. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So it's been a good trip. And we go back on Sunday. Uh, so uh, and then we're at the Halkin Financial Conference. Uh, there'll be a dinner tonight. And you're speaking at the dinner tonight. Yes. And we, at the um, conference this morning, we heard uh, Mark Farber and uh, Bill Bonner both speak. Mm-hmm. Um, big theme of, of government money printing was one of the big themes of the day and the damage it does and how it yeah. doesn't help anyone. Um, one of the kind of overriding themes, one you may or may not agree with, but some kind of end game is approaching. And maybe we kind of got a bit overwhelmed with bearish sentiment by the end of it, but that mm. did seem that the room was agreed that some kind of end game was coming. Yeah, the the highly energized side of our investment business has the same cause and effect uh, grasp of financial markets and and central bankers as the central bankers have. The the central bankers really believe that if they mm, inject currency in, it'll cause asset prices to go up. So, in other words, let's just take one step right of it, they really believe that they can depreciate a currency at will. And of course, at the meeting, everybody agrees that, well, who's going to be best at depreciating the currency? So uh, the view I've taken after reviewing um, hundreds of years of financial history is that there's no cause and effect. Uh, The central bank really requires a speculative market to get their portion of credit expansion out the window. And it's not that depreciating the dollar forces price asset prices up. It's the other way around. That with soaring asset prices, then the speculative community comes in and leverages up. Then that makes the central bankers look good. So it appears as if they can get the credit out the window. So I think that if the thesis that central banks can depreciate at will, and let's just stay with the U.S., still the senior currency and the Federal Reserve, then you would have uh, uh, one huge parabolic growth curve for asset prices. 
since the Fed opened its doors in January 1914. You do have um, a growth curve like that for the amount of credit that's out, but you don't get it for asset prices. You get huge swings. Uh, Fed opened the door in 1914. You had a worldwide straight-up uh, commodity boom that ended in, in 1920, yeah, 1920, crashed in 1921. It was a horrendous crash. Uh, the central bank community and economists in the United States noticed that. So then they spent the mid-1920s with a very easy monetary policy hoping that commodity prices would not go down. And then here's the other problem with the establishment still to this day. They think that inflation is consumer price inflation. And, uh, but, and which then is based upon um, producer price inflation or commodity inflation. And, but they still don't grasp you get inflation and financial asset prices. So this is where, what, five or six years ago, Chairman Greenspan then said they couldn't understand why bond prices were going up, long rates were going down in the midst of, uh, you know, firm commodity prices or hot stock prices and didn't understand, he called it the conundrum, didn't understand that the, the long bond had become another asset price that indeed was being inflated. So, and it's the, the, the major damage at the end of any great financial mania or bubble is not so much commodity prices going down because eventually there is a consumer bid for commodities, whereas invented credit and invented derivatives and even stock prices, there's no consumption bid as it goes down. So this is why these things can crash so hugely as they did in 2007 and 2008, which is a good little thing to review to tell us where we are and where we might be going because all of the great financial manias in the past of the first one was the South Sea bubble in 1720. And the as soon as the bubble was over, the stock market headed down, the economy slowed, um, and uh, employment went up, and there was genuine hardship. So each of the bubbles since then, that was the feature. So uh, on normal business cycles, and even the big blow-off of tech stocks in, in 2000, the stock market had a peak. A year later, the economy peaked and headed down. So the usual 12-month lead at tops from the stock market to the economy. But at the end of a, a real financial bubble, everything happens at once. So in 1929, the economy peaked in that August, and the stock market, of course, headed down in that September. 1873 bubble, you have uh, the same business cycle people, NBER, and the uh, stock market began its dreadful crash in that September of 1873, and the recession started that October. So we move ahead to 2007, and the stock market high was in the middle of October, and the recession was determined to start in December. Okay. That is the characteristics of the start of a post-bubble contraction. The next characteristic of a post-bubble contraction is that the first recession is a horror show. And this is what they said. This is the worst, de worst recession since the 1930s, the last depression. Then the recoveries, they come in, your usual 
three to four business year business cycle continues and the recoveries are weak. So then what is the establishment saying? That this is the weakest recession since the 1930s. So this is what makes me convinced we are in a post-bubble contraction. All previous ones lasted for about 20 years with severe recessions and weak recoveries. And within it, speculative stock markets, speculative commodities, because you then get to a period of extreme oversold on whether it's commodities or junk bonds or the stock market, and then you'll get a rally. When we, um, when we talked just before the interview, you were saying the people have had enough. Yes. You know, and and I might have inferred the wrong thing, but I kind of sort of thought you that made you not bearish on the price of the US dollar, but bearish on the almost on the existence of the US dollar. You, I might have misread that. No, I think what it is is that this. Uh, I believe that the world is now on another another recession, and so the pub and this will afflict the US. So the public will look at the at, uh, promises from the policymakers and say, you guys did billions and billions and trillions of our money, and here we are in another recession. So your theories are not working. So this is where it, it's really common sense that when you're of the, uh, so much of the public is suffering in its pocketbook, it's not going to allow uh, its uh, municipal or city governments to be to be continued to be extravagant, state or provincial or county governments, the same thing, and also the federal government. So let's go back to 19, late 80s in Eastern Europe, which was uh, suffering under uh, extreme central planning, and they kept looking at the, uh, the, uh, the apparatchiks, the governing classes who were living well and telling them how wonderful central planning was. And the folks were realizing that this is all promises, it's all talk. So they moved against, uh, dramatically against uh, one, of the, one of the most terrible police states in history, which was symbolized by the fall of the Berlin Wall. So now, more recently in the U.S., you've had an extraordinary experiment in authoritarian government going on. They've been telling us how wonderful it is. So I think you're in the same thing. In the next recession, the public looks and says, all of your magic stuff that you expect from central planners and central bankers isn't working we don't believe you anymore and your game is over in which case this the next step dominic is that without the the public uh, complacency and if you don't have enough speculators bidding up asset prices the fed can't depreciate the dollar so the problem will be as it has been following previous great bubbles, is that the senior currency becomes chronically strong relative to most commodities and relative to most currencies for most of the time. And this will be bewildering to the, to the establishment that really believes that the economy is managed by uh, central planners and that the central bank can depreciate, in this case, the dollar at will, uh, it ain't going to happen. So I think that where they've been doing uh, three generations of economists and central bankers have done a lot of damage, but it's all built into the box now, and there's not much more they can do. Um, 
and the public will realize it. And it, you've had, uh, of course, now also generations and generations of of a, a, a Austrian economists who have been pointing out that what the uh, what the Keynesian economists are doing is absolute idiocy. But then the Austrians have never had the ability; uh, they've never they've never had a forecasting model, and so it's always it's going to happen somewhere. So this is where even some people who are um, speaking frequently these days around the world on financial matters and condemning central bankers are correct. But if they are have the Austrian school leanings, they then don't have a forecasting model of when things are going to get really ugly. So this is where if you have done a lot of work in historical um, financial markets, you can get a um, pretty good idea of when the problems will become severe enough that they overwhelm all the propaganda that the central bankers can come out with. So, and I think this is fairly close. The, uh, you've had a tremendous surge in speculation during the summer months, right into the middle of September. You had the, uh, the head of the European Central Bank promise to, uh, what were they going to do? Goodness knows. But they, they were good promises. Yeah. Then on, on the... He, he, he promised a, a form of QE. Yeah, and then that was topped. He was going to buy various yeah. bonds. And then you, uh, that, that's right. And then the top topped it off by Bernanke coming out on September 13th and saying that they were going to be buying 50 billion of uh, mortgage-backed bonds out of the market each month. And you know what happened there? It was sort of in the market, but that gave the timing for the top because if you looked at some a number of commodities a number of stock indexes, and even including junk bonds, all these set momentum and sentiment highs on about September 14th. We called it another great cluster cluck. And um, so then you want some confirmation of that. So the market then sold off a bit on a number of these games, and then more recently are rallying back up. But, you know, I think the technical stuff within the stock market have been deteriorating, volumes diminishing, advanced declines, that sort of stuff. And you've also got here, we're going into a period of time when there can be disappointments in the market. So we've put some, let's call them lines in the sand, and one of them would be, we look at the VIX, that's the volatility yep. on the S&P. And it has been in a pattern uh, showing negative divergence against the stock market. And all we need on the VIX now is, is it did get above 15 and a half briefly, corrected back maybe 15. But if it gets above 1680, then that's made a trend change that will indicate that the volatility in the stock market is changing. The other one that we watch is, a, is the gold-silver ratio. And when it goes up, it begins to signal a problem pending in the market. And the problem, of course, is due to the fact that markets became extremely exuberant in the middle of September. So then on the, on the gold-silver ratio, which is pretty close to 53 now, it was lower than that a few weeks ago, but it's been stair-stepping up a little bit. But you look at the chart, and if it gets fully through 53, say to touch 54, then that's another mark in the sand. And there's a few others... Um, but I can't remember the numbers on them. Okay. But those two would be the, the lines in the sand where these two things happen, the VIX getting the 1680 
and a gold-silver ratio getting through 53 would say, watch out, we're looking at the next credit crisis. Wow. Um, are we approaching the end of fiat money? Uh, let's call it ending action. Fiat money has, the experiment has gone on for almost 100 years. And, well, no, more than 100 years now. And previous great similar experiments have occurred in the third century in Rome, and then there was one in the 16th century. And it seems to take about, around 100 years or somewhat more for the bureaucrats to have destroyed the finances of the country. And it takes that long before you finally get a generation of taxpayers who figure it out, just straight common sense, and say, you guys are a bunch of idiots, you're out of here. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You think we'll see it? You know, I don't know, in five, within five years or something. Uh, we could see it prob probably next year. Some serious signs that the public is... Look how fast it moved in 1988 and 89 in Eastern Europe against communist thugs. This is just against liberals with a bunch of propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, now one of your big themes has been uh, that the real price of gold rises during mm -hmm. the post-bubble contraction and therefore uh, all, even our tiny little uh, junior mining companies with their little deposits in wherever it is are going to all go to the moon. I'm paraphrasing you a little yes. bit, I hope you'll forgive me for that. Um, but at what point are we going to get another proper... I mean, at the moment, the rally we've just had since... I don't know, I suppose May. it started in May and June yeah. gold stocks. Um, you know, time is it the beginning of a new bull market or is it a, a counter-trend bounce? It's not really okay. clear. When are we going to get our full-on... Yeah, May was a disaster. When am I going to be rich? That's what I'm asking you. May ended, a, <laughs> May ended a disaster because I guess we're about the only one that's got a, more than 100 years of uh, history, uh, daily trades for a gold stock index, which we used Homestake for way before that. Now it got down to, on a monthly RSI, the second worst oversold in 100 years in May. Uh, the worst was 1922, and then there was 1948, and I don't know, 2008. But anyways, it became Maybe even worse than, I don't know, 1999 or something Maybe like that? Exceptionally oversold. So you're going to get a rally. And we got the rally. Then it has to be had to be tested, and it became tested around July. And then <laughs> lately, been pretty good. But the problem is now it's it's doing like uh, the commitment of traders' figures in gold are extremely bullish, which means watch out. And as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, the ones for silver are even more so. So. And then you also, if, if the financial markets are stretched to the limit, the probability is that something's going to go wrong and likely it'll happen in the fall. So we're now into the fall and I'm looking for things to happen. So well, they, I mean, they're going to prop it up for the election. They're not going to let the crash happen. Okay, that was, that was Bernanke's move on September 13th. And that's all in the market. So, uh, But I mean, uh, they're not... Okay, I mean, you, you, uh, I know you don't believe in interventionist economics, economics, but I mean, when's the election? November the third, no, is it? Fourth or fifth. But anyway, uh, it's always the first Tuesday of the month. They may not have the control on that, and silver will tell us. 
<laughs> and you just told me that the, the numbers on silver are, okay, are very well, threatening. Yeah, I did. So uh, now the tri the main question is when do we uh, enjoy storing gold uh, prices for the junior golds? Um, this is going to be one. See, you had the May was a disaster ending month. Then you had a bounce. Then the test. Now this fall it'll be another test of those lows and traders nerves and all that sort of stuff so I think this uh, sell-off is bound to come in gold and silver so where people cannot sell junior stocks at this time unless they happen to come up with a winner I was lucky this summer but at any rate one said be short a little silver uh, some of the silver stocks or some puts, that sort of stuff, and make a bit of money on the way down. But I think the whenever the next low comes in for the gold and silver sector will be a tremendous buying opportunity. But, Dominic, you still have to realize that it goes from oversold to overbought, and you have to have those indicators to tell you, lighten up or protect yourself, or now's the time to go to work. And, it, you know, it takes determination to buy a thinly traded stock when it looks like a bloody disaster. So, you know, you can buy one of these things and uh, next week it's down 20% from where you thought was a good value. So you just have to keep working away. But that opportunity will could happen in November. And there's somewhere the whole history begins to accumulate and then you end up with the real price of gold going up. That improves the operating margins of the mining companies. It also improves the valuations of mineral deposits and then the whole thing will become a party because the 1930s, I know uh, in Canada, the junior mining market was a fabulous game. Lots of money made and some of those junior companies back then became major companies. Very good. Well, bring on the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's inevitable. Bob Hoy, uh, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, the website yeah, is? Yeah, the website is institutionaladvisors.com. Or not, it, and I was surprised to see it when I just Googled my name one time, B-O-B-H-O-Y-E. Up it comes, all the stuff. All the articles, end of the website, the whole thing. Oh and boy, a self-googler. <laughs> oh, I think you're on to something there. <laughs> okay, institutionaladvisors.com. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Subscribe to the Gold Money newsletter at www.goldmoney.com to receive email updates on new articles, videos, and iTunes podcasts from our Gold Research section.